Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, business, and recreation. This week, author Richard Rosenfeld discusses his book, American Aurora, the story of 18th century Philadelphia's leading anti-federalist newspaper. Richard Rosenfeld, author of American Aurora, it says on page 843 of your book that the most profligate and malicious and false public newspaper that ever existed in any country and under any government is now printed in the city of Philadelphia. And you quote Mucius Scaevola as saying that. Who is Mucius Scaevola and uh, what is he talking about? Uh, we don't know who Mucius Scaevola is. Uh, that was a series of uh, three articles that appeared in the Gazette of the United States, which of course was the uh, Gazette, the newspaper that represented most closely the Adams administration, the administration of John Adams. And it was a series of articles that was running about the Philadelphia Aurora. It was speaking of the Philadelphia Aurora, uh, which the Federalists regarded, uh, John Adams, George Washington, uh, Alexander Hamilton, as the uh, most profligate newspaper in the United States because it represented the most virulent uh, opposition to the administration of Washington and Adams during the 1790s. Well, what kind of approach did the Aurora take that got everybody so upset? Well, uh, the Aurora took the po point of view that the Federalists uh, and uh, the Constitution of the United States uh, were, uh, rep represented uh, an aristocratic minority in the country uh, who were interested in uh, feathering their own economic nests at the expense of the Democratic majority and were to be feared uh, in their use of the federal government. And um, in a uh, discrediting the Federalists, the Aurora gradually, starting in 1793, uh, began to retell the American Revolution, uh, the history of the country, uh, from a point of view uh, which was that of uh, Democrats, of uh, people who wanted the United States to be a pure democracy and lost, people who fought in the Revolution to create a constitution and a society in which there'd be equal political rights for people, regardless of wealth or property, uh, but found themselves in the 1790s with an administration which seemed to, and with a constitution which same, seemed to be favoring the, the wealthy. This was John Adams' administration? John Adams and George Washington's administration. Was the Aurora as vehemently anti-George Washington as it was John Adams? Uh, it became that in, in, in the early uh, 1790s, uh, really starting with 1793, but uh, certainly by the mid-1790s, it was as virulent against Washington as it was against Adams. Uh, its most uh, ferocious editorials and its most ferocious pamphlets were published uh, around 1796, uh, which was uh, Washington was still in office. Now, there are two main characters associated with the Aurora, uh, Benjamin Franklin Beach, spelled B-A-C-H-E. Phonetically, Beach. Beach, and uh, William Duane. Can you tell me about each one of them? Well, um, Benjamin Franklin Beach was the grandson uh, of Benjamin Franklin, the, the son of his daughter, uh, uh, Sally Beach, Sarah Beach, and her husband, uh, Richard Beach, uh, or Beach, and uh, someone who uh, grew up uh, with Benjamin Franklin, who accompanied Benjamin Franklin 
uh, to France when Benjamin Franklin was sent over during the American Revolution to get French help and lived with Franklin from age seven to, until he returned to Pennsylvania at age 16 to enter college. So really was in Franklin's care for a period of nine years, the critical years of his growing up. And uh, he started this, the newspaper, the Philadelphia Aurora, uh, within six months after Franklin's death uh, in October of uh, 1790, and Franklin had died in uh, April of 1790. Uh, <coughs> William Duane uh, was Beach's successor at the Aurora. Uh, uh, Beach died during the yellow fever epidemic of 1798. He died in September, uh, about a month before his sedition trial was uh, to be held. He had been arrested by uh, the Adams administration. He had been indicted and arrested for sedition in June. Uh, the um, <coughs> federal court was going to reconvene on October 11th, but the yellow fever uh, came in the summer, principally in August, starting in August, and he died uh, in mid-September. Uh, and uh, Duane took over when the, uh, when the newspaper was, began to be resume its publication at the beginning of November of 1798. Duane, I might add, was, was an Irish Catholic who had come over uh, to the United States in, in 1796. He had actually grown up in uh, the northern part of New York. Uh, <coughs> uh, actually, it was New York then, it's now Vermont. Um, he had, he had, uh, his, his father had come over from Ireland in, in 1760, and he had lived there until 17, uh, Duane had lived there as a child until 1765. Um, and uh, Duane's and father had uh, been, uh, was caught up in the French-Indian War and was killed by Indians, and uh, Duane returned to Ireland um, then. Now, can you explain a little bit about the writing style of this book, how you wrote it, because it's not written like most history books? Well, uh, of course, uh, the writing style of the book derives from the fact that when I first sat down to write a story about the Aurora, I found the story so compelling, I, I was uh, anxious to dramatize it, and I started writing by historical fiction. Uh, I had not written a book before, and so this was my first effort, and I had a choice of forms. And what I decided was that the various forms that I had a choice of, I, I wasn't very satisfied with. Uh, and I began to think that since this was a newspaper story about the, what a newspaper said and the things that were, were, were done to silence this newspaper, that perhaps in the day-to-day -day reporting of the newspaper, uh, the newspaper could tell its own story. And what I try to do in this book is to allow, in effect, the Aurora to tell its own story uh, through day-to-day -day excerpts of the newspaper itself, <coughs> uh, uh, usually with answers of the opposing, the, the administration gazettes in the afternoon. The Aurora was published in the morning. The pr two principal journals for the Adams, Adams administration and Washington administration, or the Adams administration, uh, were published uh, in the afternoon, Por Porcupine's Gazette and the Gazette of the United States. And by allowing these newspapers to talk to themselves, uh, what happens is a colloquy. And you can hear these publishers of these newspapers speaking to each other and addressing themselves as if in a conversation. And with those, I intersperse the, uh, the letters of uh, the most famous readers of the Aurora, including George Washington, John Adams, Alex Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, James Monroe, uh, and other uh, important Americans um, who read the paper every day and would write to each other about what they read in the paper. The result of this, I think, is uh, something which uh, is not attainable in other books or found in other books, which is uh, the ability to experience what it was like to be in Philadelphia in 1798, 99, 1800. So you also uh, tie, the, uh, tie the segments of the story together with uh, a kind of narrative by William Duane? Yeah. Well, um, 
this is a, a very strange history, this book. It's not a history as most Americans have read a history. It's not from the point of view of the people who designed the Constitution and, uh, and, and ran the government for the first 12 years, meaning from the point of view of the Federalists. This is, uh, as I say, the point of view of uh, a group of people who um, uh, wanted the United States to be a pure democracy. So in order that the reader not be confused at any point is the, that, that there is a perspective in the telling of this history, I pose a, uh, uh, one of the editors to be as though he were telling the story. Uh, it's a, a, a fictional device, if you will, but it's a disregardable fictional uh, device, which as I identify in the, uh, in the author's preface, uh, as well as in uh, footnotes at the beginning of the book, so that one can read this as Duane telling the story, uh, or if you choose not to, just as Rosenfeld telling the story, uh, in a more traditional historical way. But it is important to, for, for your viewers as well as the public to understand that the perspective being offered by this book is the history of the United States from the point of view of very virulent Democrats, people who really wanted to have a pure democracy. It is not the traditional objective historian's point of view. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a voice from the past that was really regarded by Americans mostly as heretical um, and as mostly as radical. Um, it would be my contention, and it's the book's contention, that in viewing these people that way, uh, we are doing a great disservice to the telling of American history, because American history ought to be told from the point of view of those who care, about, care the most about democracy and civil liberties. That was not John Adams, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton. That was, that was, that was the voice of people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and uh, Thomas Jefferson, who were the people, the founding fathers, who cared most about American democracy. Can you set the stage a little bit, bit for the start of this book? It was the end of the Washington administration. Can you go over who the political parties were? There was the Federalists and the Republicans. Who was aligned with each one and what they believed in? Yeah, um, uh, without giving a constitutional history, uh, I, I, it's fair to say that um, the Federalists uh, were the party of George Washington and John Adams. John Adams was, of course, George Washington's a vice president who became president after two terms of George Washington's administration. Uh, the, these men were um, uh, the Federalists in the sense that they wanted a strong federal government. Uh, they were Federalists uh, in the sense that they had a, a deep uh, respect for law, but a deep fear of the uh, will of the majority to the extent that that was going to be expressed very democratically. Um, uh, they were, to the extent they favored representative government, it was representative by an elite uh, who would uh, speak for the majority. Uh, and, and it designed a constitution to achieve that kind of elite structure. Um, you have to remember that uh, uh, when the constitution was first developed, it was developed uh, as a, uh, with a Senate that was not elected by the people, but by, house, but, but by state legislatures. And in those state legislatures, there were Senates uh, where you had to have a substantial amount of property to be a state senator, and there were lots of, so that in effect you had a property veto on who would become U.S. senators. And there were a variety of other aspects of the design of the U.S. Constitution which were intended to put governance in the hands of those who tended to be most affluent and among the elite. That was that group. The opposition viewpoint, the Republican viewpoint, and that, was, that is different, a different Republican Party than the present-day Republican Party. Yes, this is the Republican Party uh, of those we would probably call Democratic Republicans because they call themselves Democratic Republicans in the late 1790s. People who wanted to have a republic, a republic of laws, what have you, but wanted it to be very democratic, wanted it to 
uh, one of the, for, that, for them, the meaning of republic had changed somewhat. It meant something uh, more akin to democracy as we would say, define democracy today, a, a, rep a representative government close to the people, uh, or closer to the people. And uh, these, uh, these men were, um, so really what happened in the opening of this book uh, the, the, in 1798 was that uh, it was late in the stage of the French Revolution and it was clear that the United States uh, was in the process of choosing sides as to whether we were going to uh, be uh, on the side of France, which was now a democratic republic, uh, or whether we were going to side with England, uh, our former, uh, uh, the, the British monarch uh, that we had fought our independence from. And that was, a tough, that was a choice. For democratic republicans, there was no choice. They saw the French Revolution as, a, as uh, something springing from the American Revolution, a revolution to overcome uh, aristocracy and monarchy to give us a democracy. Uh, for the Federalists, who were not so passionate about democracy, the idea of democracy, uh, they saw the French Revolution as representing the turbulence and, and um, violence of uh, pure democracy, something they feared. And in the end, the Federalists made a choice uh, to support, if you will, the British against the French. As this decision evolved, uh, those on the democratic side became more and more concerned and uh, where, where this book opens, it's at a time when the United States is preparing for war with France and the Philadelphia Aurora and the Democrats are outraged that it seems that that's what, the way things are happening and, uh, and, and the battle between Democratic Republicans and the Federalist John Adams administration uh, is begun. So Philadelphia was the capital city at the time. And it we was. talked a little bit about the American Aurora and on the other side of the, the aisle was the the Gazette of the United States and Porcupine's Gazette. Right. Can you talk about each of those and who the, the lead characters were? Well, as I've indicated, the, the Philadelphia Aurora, the Democratic Republican newspaper, leading de Democratic Republican newspaper was, was published by Benjamin Franklin's grandson and, and by his successor, William Duane. Uh, the two other newspapers that I focus on in the book, the Gazette of the United States, Gazette of the United States was, uh, was being published uh, with the support of John Adams, Alexander Ham Hamilton, uh, financial support. Uh, by a man by the name of John Fenno, who had uh, come from, who was an unsuccessful Boston businessman who had come to New York to start a newspaper at the urging of Adams and Hamilton, in effect to support the uh, the, the Federalist administration um, of that of Washington when the government was first beginning. And during the 1790s, the Gazette of the United States under John Fenno was the leading newspaper in the United States for uh, the the administrations of uh, Washington and Adams. Uh, its offices were on Chestnut Street. Uh, really a block away from the Aurora on the opposite side from, from Market. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, uh, John Fenno was the printer to the United States Senate. He got most of the government printing. Uh, when, there, when he had problems, he could go to Washington, Adams, whoever, and, uh, and get financing from one of the principal uh, Federalists. Um, the other newspaper was being published by a British subject, uh, William Cobbett, uh, at that time someone who had served in the British Army in uh, in, uh, in, in Canada and who came to the United States also uh, in the mid-1790s. And he started his newspaper called Porcupine's Gazette. Uh, William Cobbett, his uh, 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 pen name would be P uh, Peter Porcupine. And he would sign most of his editorials Peter Porcupine uh, because his quill was so sharp, of course. And um, uh, he, was, he was a British subject and uh, over across from uh, Christ Church here in Philadelphia, he opened a shop and he put pictures of royalty in the, w the windows, painted the, painted the building blue, that no longer exists, and, uh, and he wrote from a 
royalist, federalist um, uh, point of view, a very, very radically conservative point of view. And he was, in fact, he started, he started his newspaper on the day John Adams became president, and he was uh, the favorite, John Adams' favorite newspaper. He was, represented the, the very uh, British uh, point of view. And I might say that as soon as John, it was clear John Adams was no longer going to be president, uh, Porcupine left Philadelphia. And, um, uh, and it was always suspected that Porcupine really was uh, a, an emissary from the British uh, government to try to uh, push things in a British direction during the Adams administration. How widely read were newspapers at the time? Well, uh, I think you have to um, speak of different newspapers. Um, uh, at that time, it was customary uh, for newspapers without attribution um, to be copied by other newspapers. And there was a franking privilege of newspapers to send their newspapers cost-free to other newspapers throughout the country. So while a circulation of the Gazette of the United States or uh, the Philadelphia Aurora or Porcupine's Gazette might be around 2,000, nevertheless, um, what it wrote, since it was in Philadelphia, the capital of the country, and it had access to international news and national news the most closely, it was copied, it was sent free to, throughout the, the nation, and it was copied by Federalist Papers or Democratic Republicans uh, newspapers throughout the country. Uh, and so its influence was far beyond its subscriber base. And in the case of the Aurora, which was read by the poorer people, the, less, the, the lower born people in the country, uh, those people tended to uh, pass the newspaper from hand to hand or leave it in taverns, which serve sort of as libraries of the poor. And uh, so the, the, the multiply, the readership factor, as opposed to the circulation or uh, a print factor, was, was very great for the Democratic-Republican newspapers. So they were widely read. Uh, and, they were, and some newspapers would copy the Aurora day by day. It was actually so ridiculous, all the copying, that sometimes the Aurora itself would copy something that it had originally published. Uh, from another newspaper, having forgotten that it originally published it. So there, there, there was, uh, copyright wasn't a major factor in this. Can you compare a newspaper of the 1790s, 1800 to newspapers today? I mean, how much comment do you, do you get compared to what we would call today news? Um, well, uh, I think that um, the, the news, there was no strong uh, distinction in the minds of publishers between editorial and news. There were uh, columns in the newspaper that were, were clearly editorial, where the items chosen would f clearly favor uh, the, the newspaper's point of view and where the publisher himself would make some observations, usually unsigned. Uh, but in fact, generally, the, the entire newspaper represented the point of view. Unless they were, co they were perhaps reporting Congress, uh, a transcript of what was happening in Congress or something of this sort. Um, so uh, I would say there wasn't the clear differentiation we would have today between the editorial pages and uh, the, uh, the news pages. Um, but everyone understood that. Everyone knew what the point of view of the newspaper they were subscribing to. It was their, his or her point of view. And uh, um, so there, there was no question about that. Where did you find all these newspapers in your research? Well, uh, a lot of these newspapers, are, uh, the, the, the Aurora, for example, is kept at the American Antiquarian Society in, uh, in, in Worcester, outside of Boston, which has, is the largest repository for early American documents in the, are, country, in the are, world. Are they copied, or do you get uh, the originals? Well, you can get the originals there. A historian doing research who wants to see the originals can, see, can find them there. 
but they're also in microfilm so that um, uh, most university libraries, uh, large university libraries, would uh, have microfilm of the Aurora and Gazette of the United States and Porcupine Gazette, uh, uh, university microfilms of Michigan, as well as Redex microfilms of, uh, I believe it's Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, uh, has done a tremendous job of, of reproducing all this on microfilm. And uh, it is, uh, so it is available to scholars on microfilm. That's the way I, I basically used it on microfilm. And you said this was your first book? This is my first book, yeah. What it, was it like to go reading through all those newspapers? Was it painstaking or was it kind of fun? Uh, it was a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, there's, a, there's a great uh, secret, I think, that uh, the public uh, has, uh, doesn't know. And that secret is that um, the historian, historians do not live uh, in the world of the dead and the past. Historians live in the world of the living. Because when you read original documents, you read letters written by people. Uh, back and forth to each other on a given moment in time or read newspapers talking to each other on a given day. Uh, those people are no longer dead. They're alive and talking to each other and you can experience them just as you would reading a letter from a friend today. So that's uh, one of the purposes of this book, I hope, is to allow readers the excitement of reading early uh, original documents, uh, not having it told, filtered through a uh, historian's voice, but giving them as much as possible the original documents. And, and those who've read the, pa uh, the book uh, generally uh, agree that uh, those original documents make the book lively in a way an, an ordinary history can never be lively. Was it hard to find a publisher for a book like this? I mean, it was. It's over 1,000 pages. 1,000 pages of 18th century text, $40. Um, uh, it was difficult to find a publisher. It was, uh, I thought it was, it was courageous of St. Martin's to do it. Uh, the book has been selling very well. Uh, it was uh, nominated for Pulitzer. It, uh, it was chosen by the Los Angeles Times as the best history book of, of 1997. It was a finalist in the Robert Kennedy Awards, uh, one of five finalists. Uh, so the book has, has received a lot of recognition um, uh, around the country and, uh, in fact, is the subject. An entire cor course is being taught around the book at the University of Alabama right now uh, this semester. And so I think that its new vision of American history, telling it from this uh, democratic point of view, uh, is finding a following. And uh, I, hope, I certainly hope that continues. How long did it take you to write? About four years. And also on the back, there's praise for American Aurora and uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Pulitzer Prize winner is quoted, Benno Schmidt, former president of Yale University, Ira Glasser, executive director of American Civil Liberties Union. How do you get these people to endorse your book? send them a manuscript and say, won't you take a look? Do they do that for free? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I was the keynote speaker at the American Civil Liberties Union uh, na National Dinner in Washington at the National Archives where the Bill of Rights documents are kept this year. Uh, the, the American Civil Liberties Union sees this uh, book as a very important uh, uh, a description of uh, a time when there was no uh, federal court system to enforce the Bill of Rights where uh, remember that Marbury versus Madison wasn't decided till 1803 or 4, uh, that the, the, the federal courts couldn't toss out the Alien and Sedition Acts, they couldn't strike down the act, acts of the Adams administration in trying to silence these newspaper editors, and that the only court of appeal was the court of public opinion. So here you have a defense of the First Amendment by these editors and by Democratic Republican supporters uh, at a time when they're going out into the streets, they're, they're publishing in the face of uh, really unconstitutional, unconstitutional acts by the Adams administration was the first test of the First Amendment, and it couldn't be a court test. So it's a very important civil libertarian, uh, it's a time from a civil libertarian point of view, 
Uh, it's a, and it's a time, uh, and, and really this, this book is long overdue in terms of telling this time in a very detailed way. I'd like to go over briefly about some of the main characters in, uh, sure. in politics at the time, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and um, start off with some of the relationships and what they thought of each other. You, you quote John Adams here talking about George Washington as saying that Washington was not a scholar is certain, that he was too illiterate, unlearned, unread for his station and reputation is equally beyond dispute. He had derived little knowledge from reading, none from travel. Well, of course, this book is reinforcing a viewpoint uh, that was not, um, uh, 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 let's see if I can express it a slightly different way. The mythology of Washington as the father of this country is a Federalist mythology. It, 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 the, 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 it, Washington was, in fact, the, the figurehead of the Federalist Party. Ha uh, Hamilton, uh, Adams, all of these people uh, had Washington as the first president because he was clearly the, uh, a perfect person to represent them. Uh, in the government, uh, in a way, he acted somewhat as a king. Really, Hamilton ran the cabinet uh, uh, without comparing exactly with the British system. It was uh, Hamilton, the chancellor of the exchequer, head of the party, running the cabinet, and Washington sitting up as, as a bit of a symbol. Um, and um, and p the Democratic-Republican point of view about Washington was that this mythology um, was dangerous to the country, uh, that it, among other things, denied uh, Democrats like Benjamin Franklin, his fair to do, and in fact that the Federalists, Washington, Adams, and others had discredited ben Benjamin Franklin uh, uh, because they feared him as a Democrat. You remember when Franklin died, uh, though Philadelphia had the largest uh, funeral uh, the, uh, the country had ever seen at, to that point, uh, it was only the House of Representatives that agreed to mourn Franklin's death. Washington refused to have the executive branch mourn Franklin's death, and the United States Senate, under John Adams as president of the Senate, refused to have uh, the Senate uh, mourned Franklin's death. Uh, so it was only the people and the people's house, the House of Representatives, that mourned Franklin's death. Well, Democratic Republicans saw uh, the dis discrediting of Franklin, the belittling of Franklin by the Federalists during the 1790s, uh, and the mythologizing of Washington's role as dangerous. And therefore, uh, they began to retell the tale of the, the revolution to show that Washington really hadn't won the revolution France had, that Washington had been an incompetent general and, and that his reputation was myth. And this book sort of, uh, though Beige died before his sedition trial, this book attempts to give uh, Beige the sedition trial he never had to test these claims uh, to see what support uh, there is in history for uh, the vision of America's beginnings that these editors put forth. And of course, that's uh, why I don't call the book the Philadelphia Aurora, but American Aurora, since it's about really the whole beginning of the country and how to look at it. How did Thomas Jefferson fit in? How did he relate to Adams and Washington? Well, uh, Jefferson was, um, uh, Jefferson was the leader, uh, the, 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 I'd say a symbolic leader, if you will, of the uh, Democratic Republicans. He was vice president at the time. This was before the president and the vice president had to be of the same party. So you had John Adams as president, and you had uh, uh, George, uh, and you had uh, Jefferson as vice president. Interestingly, the, the Sedition Act that John, John Adams' party passed and he signed uh, prohibited criticism of government officials except vice presidents, so that people, that Federalists were left free to criticize Jefferson. Uh, one more e bit of evidence that this was a party, uh, party act and not an act for, uh, having to do with the defense of the nation. But Jefferson was the symbol then, as he is today, of democratic values. 
And though there have been books written to show that, Demo that, that Jefferson was not the full, completely the author of the, Democratic, of, the, of the Declaration of Independence, nevertheless, even at this time when he was about to be elected president, uh, the Democratic Republicans cited him as the author of the Declaration of Independence. Though he may have not throughout his whole life been tolerant about slaves or, or, or intolerant of slavery, nevertheless, he was the symbol of anti, the anti-slavery movement of the Democratic Republicans in the 1790s. And though he may have, during his presidency, have been in various ways unfriendly to the press, nevertheless, he was also seen as the lead, leading uh, uh, opponent uh, of uh, chains on the press, as the lead, leading uh, a proponent of a free press in the 1790s. So he was an icon in the 1790s as he is today. That's not an iconology that's happened later. Uh, and so therefore I have a bit of a trouble with historians who bring in a lot of facts that no one during Jefferson's time knew or did not influence the public perception of him. Uh, the public perception of Jefferson uh, that elected him president was, was, was the, the perception of him as a Democrat the way he has been revered over time ever since his, his life. Has he been mythologized as much as Washington was? Uh, I think to some extent he has been, although of course um, uh, it's mythologizing Jefferson is using an icon that did in fact represent democracy uh, in the nation. Uh, mythologizing Washington and Adams is, are, are mythologizing uh, uh, people who uh, fear democracy. And there's, so there's a, a qualitative difference in my view at least. Uh, I want to talk about the Sedition Act, which you've mentioned, and the, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which sure. were different laws. You, you do quote Jefferson in here as saying, the Alien and Sedition Acts are merely an experiment on the American mind to see how far it will bear an avowed violation of the Constitution. If this goes down, we shall immediately see an attempt, uh, see attempted another act of Congress declaring that the President shall continue in office during life reserving to another occasion the transfer of the succession to his heirs and the establishment of the Senate for life. Was that a, a real possibility? Well, that's a matter, if you accept that as a real possibility, then as this book argues, you have to tell American history completely differently. Because Jefferson's view and the view of these editors and, 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 and people who were, who were close to these editors was that in fact, George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, uh, would have been perfectly happy to have the British Constitution in the United States with a hereditary king, with a, a landed aristocracy and an upper house of the legislature. And that, in fact, creating the form of the, Brit of, of the British Constitution uh, in the American Constitution was only a step in their mind toward bringing monarchy to the United States, bringing the, these feared uh, uh, institutions back again. So um, there's been great debate about historian, among historians as to whether John Adams was, in fact, a monarchist, as, as this newspaper, the Philadelphia Aurora, alleged, as, as, uh, as Jefferson believed, uh, and as many Americans believe, which is, in fact, why uh, John Adams was not elected president in 18, re-elected president in 1800, and Jefferson was. Um, but it's a, it's a, that decision uh, is a critical decision uh, for Americans in deciding how American history should be told. Because if you see Adams and the Federalists as really opponents of democracy, as really people who would have been happy with the, 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 the British Constitution here, uh, then you would tell the story of the 1790s and the beginning of this country quite differently, um, uh, not as we've traditionally told it. So when you ask me whether Jefferson was right, that what was happening in Philadelphia in the late 1790s with the Alien Sedition Acts was one step toward monarchy in this country, uh, the next step being that we'd have senators for life and, uh, heredit and the hereditary principle would come back, which is what Jefferson feared was the movement of Adams and Hamilton uh, and the Federalists at this time, 
then if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you accept Jefferson's point of view, uh, we should tell American history uh, very differently than we do. What specifically did the Sedition Acts prohibit or require, and what effect did they have? Well, uh, the Alien Sedition Acts, uh, and I'm going to include both because I think it's important uh, to understand that you, you know, if, if it's true today, it's even more true then that the United States is a nation of immigrants. Uh, there, you know, there, there, there were no uh, U.S. citizens, if you will, until, from a British point of view at least, until you had 1783 when they recognized the United States. Uh, so that we're, we're only talking uh, 15 years later, and there are still lots of people arriving in the United States from Europe to become citizens. So in passing acts against aliens, so-called, against would-be citizens, uh, you were dealing with a large, a large population uh, in the country, and if you could frighten them into silence by saying, as the Alien Acts did, that the president can uh, uh, exile anybody who he suspected of disloyalty uh, without a trial, without a hearing, you can achieve the same silence that you can through a Sedition Act. Now, the Sedition Act uh, was uh, aimed at citizens. It said, uh, although it could include uh, aliens as well, uh, it said that anyone who criticized the, uh, the federal government um, uh, the, uh, or the president um, uh, or, or, or uh, cast uh, aspersions or uh, said things that would be um, unkind to his reputation uh, could be jailed. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and people were jailed for saying that uh, John Adams were, was, was boastful or proud or uh, what have you. And so uh, and, and one, one man was fined for uh, laughingly suggesting that um, he didn't care if someone shot a cannonball through uh, Adams' backside. Uh, so so uh, the, the net effect of it was that uh, a lot of newspaper editors were jailed, uh, a, a lot of newspapers closed, uh, opposition newspapers, uh, Democratic Republican newspapers. In fact, all of the major newspapers, Democratic Republican uh, newspapers north of Virginia, uh, except the Aurora, uh, 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 major ones were closed. And um, so it was a pretty hor horrific period. They were closed by arresting the publisher? Arresting the publisher. Why did the, why did the Aurora get spared? Um, it's a good question. I think uh, they, they did try every, every possible, uh, they, they, as I said, they indicted Beige for sedition, uh, uh, and, and, but Beige died before the sedition trial. Uh, had, had he not gone to jail, what would have happened with the Aurora is uh, subject of speculation. Uh, they tried to, they certainly tried to indi indict his successor and jail him. In the end, his successor, William Duane, had to go into hiding uh, as a result of Federalist actions. Um, and, and edited the newspaper from hiding uh, at the end of the 18th century. So uh, a lot was done. Uh, in fact, the uh, crowds of Federalists attacked uh, the Aurora's offices when Bache uh, was publisher, as well as when Duane was publisher. And the Federal Army officers uh, in 1799 attacked the Aurora, took, took Duane out into the public marketplace on Market Street uh, amid the shambles there and, and beat him and beat his son. Uh, this was federal troops? Federal troops. Uh, and so there, there, a lot was done to, to, uh, to silence the Aurora. Uh, to some extent, I think probably the Aurora is protected by Franklin's reputation. After all, it was being published uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a, a print shop that was built by Benjamin Franklin using Benjamin Franklin's press. press. A lot of institutions in, in, in Philadelphia, of course, were Franklin and their origins. And uh, I, so I think that there was some restraint for a certain period of time until we got well into 1798 uh, that, that spared uh, the Aurora uh, 
uh, a kind of great violent action. Uh, but uh, that came to an end, certainly, uh, especially when Duane took over. Uh, a lot was done to close it. You also mentioned that the editor of the, or the publisher of the Reading Eagle uh, was also beaten by federal troops. Yeah, um, Jacob Schneiderman, I think, or, uh, Schneider was his name. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was also uh, during the so-called Freeze Rebellion. It says how you talk about American history, again, depends on how you've learned it. If you've learned it from what I would describe as a Federalist point of view, you would, might call it the Freeze Rebellion, meaning that these rebellious uh, uh, Germans were, uh, uh, had to be suppressed by the federal government because they were a threat to uh, to the, go the government, they were opposing uh, John Adams' taxes. Uh, if you're a Democratic Republican telling the story, you're, you're, you would see these, uh, these people, the, the countryside, as uh, not rising up, but expressing uh, their opposition to Adams to unconstitutional acts, the, the Sedition Acts, the, uh, the Sedition Act and the Alien Acts, as well as the war taxes that, he, uh, that, that Adams had imposed in order to fight the, pr the proposed war with France, in effect. And uh, the federal, federal troops went into the countryside and suppressed those, that, those, that opposition by entering people's homes, tearing down liberty poles, uh, beating, as you say, uh, newspaper editors that reported army abuses, um, and uh, uh, otherwise uh, infringing on the, on, the, on the rights of Americans. And uh, one, you really call it federal army abuses rather than a freeze rebellion. And when those federal troops returned to Philadelphia, uh, 30 army officers attacked the Philadelphia Aurora for failing for, for their reporting of arming, army abuses, and they, as I say, they beat Duane and they beat his son. What is a liberty pole? A liberty pole is something that was erected during the American Revolution to start with. It's a symbol of opposition, symbol of opposition to the British, a uh, symbol of uh, opposition to Toryism, to what have you, and just just a symbol of uh, political opposition, freedom. I want to read something. You mentioned that uh, Benjamin Beach. Uh, died in the yellow fever epidemic, 1798. And uh, John Adams, after Beach died, says here, uh, Benjamin Beach in his Aurora became, of course, one of the most malicious libelers of me, but the yellow fever arrested him in his detestable career and sent him to his grandfather, Benjamin Franklin, from whom he inherited a dirty, envious, jealous, and revengeful spite against me for no other cause under heaven than because I was too honest a man to favor or connive at his selfish schemes of ambition and avarice. It's pretty strong words. Uh, Adams and Franklin did not get along? Uh, uh, and well, uh, Adams Benjamin. hated Franklin uh, uh, from, from his time in France. I would say the resentments were even evident before uh, uh, Adams got to France. Um, uh, it was a, a, a combination of jealousy uh, of uh, political opposition because Franklin was a great Democrat and, uh, and Adams wasn't, uh, and, uh, and a sense of uh, the fact that Adams wanted to be seen as a great and powerful founding father. Uh, it was clear to him that he would become a not uh, to be seen that way, and that Franklin was going to be seen throughout the world as an important figure. I want to backtrack a little bit to the Washington administration because I wanted to read this about uh, the Aurora writing about George Washington. Um, and this is, I guess this is your wording here. Not content merely to criticize Washington's presidency, the Aurora attacked his leadership during the American Revolution, describing his mental faculties as unadorned by, un by extraordinary features or uncommon capacity his politics as inoffensive neutrality. It portrayed Washington as lukewarm toward independence. 
incompetent as a military leader and deserving little credit for the final outcome of the war. How accurate is that? Well, this book provides the evidence that what the Aurora said is true. Um, I, I, I can make my own judgment about that evidence. I think there is substantial evidence to suggest that George Washington was not a, a very a great uh, military leader. Uh, I think there's substantial evidence to uh, suggest that it was uh, France and Franklin who uh, saved the revolution for Washington. Uh, and this book provides that evidence. Um, and you have to remember in the, in the final battle of Yorktown, for example, uh, Washington brought 2,000 troops from New York to Yorktown. The French brought 32,000 uh, uh, military to Yorktown. Uh, Washington, um, uh, Washington troops would not go to Yorktown without a bribe. They didn't want to fight in the South. Uh, France pr provided the money uh, to bribe Washington's uh, troops to, to fight. The France uh, lost, had tw twice as many wounded at Yorktown as Americans. Uh, they had twice as many killed at Yorktown as Americans. Uh, when, the, when Yorktown was a siege, Washington had no siege experience. Uh, Rochambeau and uh, the French had uh, invented the art of siege warfare. Uh, they were very experienced. Rochambeau had participated in 14 seizures. They conducted Yorktown. Uh, when it was time for Cornwallis to surrender at Yorktown, he tried to surrender to Rochambeau, to the French, but they, the French directed him, compelled him, in effect, to surrender to Washington. The, the, the British regarded it as a, really a French event, not an American event, what happened at Yorktown. And yet, when the story was told about Yorktown, American historians make Washington the, uh, uh, the hero. Um, uh, many of Washington's slaves fought him at Yorktown, joined the British to fight him. Um, uh, we don't tell history from that point of view. Uh, the Aurora did. And of course, um, uh, the reason this book has become so controversial uh, is that it's really, I think, the first time to someone has tried to take what the Aurora and other radical Democratic Republicans have said in the late 1790 and ask the question, is it possible that it's true? And that's really what the premise of the book is. Of the two parties at the time, the Federalists and the Republicans, who won? If they came back, if Adams and Jefferson came back and looked at the United States now, which one would think, up? Oh, I won? Well, that's a very, very complicated subject. Very, very complicated subject. Because it's clear today that uh, we have, we've changed the words a bit. Um, uh, we don't, when we talk about the imperial presidency today, we don't speak of it as a monarchical presidency. Uh, I suspect that uh, the Democratic Republicans would. Uh, they feared, uh, the Democratic Republicans who published the Aurora did not want to have an independent executive branch, an independent president. They wanted to have simply a legislative branch, House of Representatives, House of Commons, that would choose its president, and the president would be served, in effect, at the pleasure of the House of Representatives. This idea of an independent executive president who can decide to commit troops and things of that sort without the approval of Congress, essentially, that imperial presidency, they, they would say, is monarchical. Likewise, when we hear about PAC committees and people sleeping in the Lincoln bedroom today, uh, Democratic Republicans would say that's the ultimate aristocracy, uh, that we had fought a revolution to prevent people of property and wealth from running the government, from having a disproportionate say in our democracy, and that when it's clear that you can only be elected to uh, the Senate or even the House if you have a lot of money, and that if you tend to get millionaires, affluent people in office in the Senate, when, you, uh, when it takes tremendous amounts of money to run for office, and when wealthy groups, lobbyists, and others uh, are able to insinuate themselves in the process of making legislation in a way where you cannot predict the outcome of legislation based on what the popular will is, you have to predict the outcome of legislation based on 
the, the power of certain lobby groups, the power of, uh, of, of, of certain kinds of machinations you don't fully understand, uh, then uh, you're no longer, then you're more in the kind of government that John Adams wanted, a government run by not the majority of the ordinary people, but in fact by uh, a, 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 a government balanced that where that, those ordinary people are balanced by people of wealth and, and, special, and special qualification. Well, like you say in your conclusions in the book here, uh, among your conclusions, you say that it is not by chance that American presidents and senators are on average wealthier than members of the House of Representatives. It is by design. Well, of course, um, that was the whole issue of how we design the United States government. Um, the, the United States Senate and, uh, and the presidency were, were, were purposely created not to be um, uh, institutions based on small congressional districts where ordinary people could choose and know their representatives as the House of Representatives would have been had it been exactly as Benjamin Franklin had, had wanted it, not as it ultimately ended up being. And that, in fact, um, uh, if you look at the kind of money it takes to run statewide for us to be a Senate, even, even in 1913 the system was changed where no longer state legislatures elected senators, chose senators, the people themselves directly did. That was thought at the time, I think, to be uh, more democratic, but in fact it wasn't. If you look at the Federalist concept of uh, aristocracy, if you will, the larger the, the, the voting district, the more likely it was that somebody of wealth uh, and property would become the representatives because it required reputation, more wealth uh, to, to span the distances involved in a large, a large voting district, like a state. So, if you, if you, so to run for the United States Senate, you have to have a lot more money and a lot more money behind you than you do, for example, to run for Congress. And I think if you look historically at the average wealth of a United States Senator compared with that of a the average wealth of a U.S. congressman, you'd find that senators are wealthier. That's the result of a, a larger and larger voting districts. And of course, presidents are even more so. You, even if the president himself is not wealthy, the kind of wealth required to make someone president means that a lot of very wealthy people are going to have a, a, a disproportionate say as to uh, what the, how the presidency operates. Can I ask you briefly about yourself? Where are you from originally? Boston. Um, Boston uh, attended uh, uh, Yale, law school at uh, uh, Columbia, master's in law at Boston University. Uh, I was in business for many years. I sold my business in 1986 to pursue philanthropic and other uh, pursuits, family pursuits, and, uh, and this is my first uh, uh, return to the world of scholarship, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience. What did you study in college? Uh, I created my own major in uh, college, which was called the Philosophical Foundations for Modern Political Ideology. It was a, it was a divisional major which allowed me to take political philosophy and, uh, and as well as political theory, political philosophy from the philosophy side of things and political theory from the political science side of things. Uh, you say in the last page of the book, your, your credits, my interest in America's political history was first excited by an extraordinary high school history teacher, the late Richard Wickenden at Tabor Academy. What does it take to make a good history teacher? Well, uh, this book makes an argument that uh, if you, that, that history, that the passions belong in history. It's not something you take out of history. That um, this, this book tries to uh, get the reader to feel the passions of Democratic Republicans to, if, if you will, take their side. 
in experiencing those feelings, those Democratic Republican feelings, you are getting very close to the authentic historical experience. Uh, I would say Richard Wickman was great because he, he, he got his students involved in a passionate way in the materials he presented. Um, in fact, when he spoke, he spoke with a certain amount of um, spray from his mouth. And uh, if you sat in the first two classes, first rows of his of the classroom, uh, you were likely to be uh, drenched by the end of the end of the performance. But he would lean forward with a big fist. He was a bear of a man, and he would speak with passion. And and uh, I took the shower. I went right up there. I just I I, I got caught in his passion. He, whether he discussed communism or the Bill of Rights or the uh, Whatever aspect of American history he talked, uh, I, I found myself right with him, and it remains to this day. You know, I, I, I'd, I like to think that he'd be proud of his uh, high school student uh, doing this. Have you ever taught? No, although I had experience. I was invited by uh, a, a school, uh, the Altamont School down in, in uh, Alabama, to, to teach some history classes there for a day, and I had the and it was a wonderful experience. I, I, it was uh, uh, thrilling. So I think that. Uh, the ex and of course, I've been lecturing about the book. I talked to the friends of the Franklin Papers at Yale and other other groups. I taught for a day at the uh, at the Fletcher School at uh, uh, at uh, Tufts. I taught for a day at the Shorenstein Center of the Press at Harvard. So I at Kennedy School at Harvard. So I've had some uh, lecturing experiences, which have been my fir first, of course, and um, I I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And you're married? Married. Uh, wife Anne, who's here with me in Philadelphia. We have two children. Uh, one's a newspaper a writer in Los Angeles. Another is uh, working as a financial analyst in New York. Um, neither my history buffs, uh, but um, wonderful kids. How did you find out about Phil the Philadelphia Aurora in the first place? Well, you know, I'm not a historian by trade. I'm, I'm a civil libertarian. What I do care about, I've always served on boards of the American Civil Liberties Union and uh, what have you. And I was involved in the civil rights movement in the '60s. I, I talked about William Sloan Coffin Jr. and uh, and the inspiration he was to me in this book. Um, I, I want to write a book about civil liberties, and I, the first part of the book was about the First Amendment and the Sedition Act, because I thought it was very funny that seven years after the Bill of Rights had been ratified, George Washington and John Adams should be in, instituting a law that made it uh, uh, imprisonable to criticize the president. That was uh, only seven years after the Bill of Rights. And when I got there uh, to look at that period, at first I thought I had no story to write at all, because I thought was, the United States was preparing for war with France, and uh, after all, cur curtailment of the press during wartime is e acceptable even under our present constitutional regime. Uh, and uh, I thought there was nothing to talk about. But when I saw that the Washington Adams were trying to quiet the grandson of Benjamin Franklin, that they were trying to imprison the grandson of Franklin, uh, and I found some literature from Adams saying that he saw this grandson as carrying on against him the same campaign that Franklin was carrying on, then I began to wonder whether Washington and Adams were trying to suppress the ghost of Benjamin Franklin. And the moment I saw the, the, the Philadelphia Aurora, Aurora as the ghost of Benjamin Franklin, then I began to ask the question, well, what possibly could have been the relationship between Franklin and Adams in Washington, which would want Franklin make, make Adams in Washington want to jail Franklin's ghost? So that, suddenly the civil libertarian uh, got excited by a story uh, which suggested to me that national security was not the, uh, the, the, the reason for the Sedition Act and the Alien Act, but really there was something else going on here. Uh, and something that Franklin wouldn't have liked. So that's when I began to look into the relationship between Franklin and Adams and Washington and discovered this, uh, this bifurcation of uh, U.S. Um, uh, ideology between people like Franklin and Paine, who had wanted the United States to, to be a democracy, and people like Washington and Adams and Hamilton, who had succeeded 
in preventing the United States from being a democracy. At that point, the battle between the Aurora and uh, the Federalists, Adams and Washington, in the late 1790s uh, took on heroic proportions. It was the David uh, uh, against the Goliaths, this, this young man who, after all, when he died, was only 29, this young man taking on uh, the founding fathers who were two generations ahead of him and, uh, and bringing them down. Washington refused to run for a third term uh, because of the Aurora. Everyone attributed the Aurora's criticism of Washington as to why he left office. And there's no question, as Thomas Jefferson said, that the Aurora was what put Jefferson in, 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 uh, in the White House and, uh, and, uh, and got rid of John Adams. So this, this young, these young men uh, took on a different generation in the name of democracy and effectively destroyed forever the political party of Washington and Adams and Hamilton. Now, one of the things I learned from your book is uh, George Washington was much more involved in politics than is generally thought after he retired. You have him writing a lot of letters. He to does write a lot of letters. Of course, you know, the, as, as John Adams prepared for war with France, uh, he brought back Washington uh, to be head of the army. Uh, and, uh, and Washington agreed to be head of the army and got involved in army planning for a potential invasion, although he would only actively serve, he said, when the French, in fact, did invade, which they never did. Uh, but uh, he still uh, presided over uh, the army, uh, and, and Alexander Hamilton was the second in command. So he really retired, but he was brought back during this period to be involved in uh, defense preparations. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to go uh, briefly, if you could run down, uh, I want to give you a couple of names and have you give me a couple of sentences about what you personally think about each of them. Uh, Thomas Paine. Uh, a, a great Democrat, one of the, one of the founding fathers. Uh, when uh, when Paine uh, came forward with common sense, though it's not popularly understood, this was the first time that anyone said that the United States should be a democracy, a pure democracy, the, the Franklinian type of democracy. And when he came out with that message, suddenly the whole country swung toward revolution, uh, and which raises the question, at least in my mind, whether in fact uh, there weren't a lot of Democrats in 1776, something that, that, that uh, historians generally uh, have not acknowledged. John Adams. John Adams was a man who, um, was uh, somewhat emotionally unbalanced, who, uh, who saw himself as, throughout his life, as a, a life that was to be heroic, to be uh, important, uh, always felt that he was not recognized as such, even when he was president, uh, went to his death believing that he would, he would be vilified as uh, uh, he was in the 1790s. Uh, he is not as great a founding father as popularly perceived, argued, and most of the people who think highly of John Adams uh, base it on correspondence of him at the end of his life when he softened, changed from the villain he appears in this book and the way he conducted his politics in France and in the United States uh, in the uh, 1780s and 90s. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was a private person uh, who uh, really wasn't cut out for politics, but was a philosopher who kept getting dragged into it. Um, he, uh, he was not a fighter. He was not going to stand up for the principles that he talked about. He would often urge uh, other people uh, to write for newspapers and confront the Federalists, but he himself would boast that he had never written for a newspaper. Uh, he 
may have authored uh, the, the, uh, the Virginia, Virginia Kentucky resolutions, but he never publicly came forward with them. Uh, he was, uh, uh, it was up to the editors of newspaper, this newspaper uh, and, and other Democratic Republican newspapers to fight the fight for democracy against the Federalists. Um, when the day that Beige was arrested and, and, uh, and, and, the, and Federalists came to the Aurora's office, uh, that was the day that uh, uh, Jefferson went back to Virginia from Philadelphia. And the Federalist Papers made a note of the fact that this was Jefferson leaving once again in the face of, 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 uh, of opposition. Abigail Adams. Um, someone intensely loyal to John Adams, uh, someone who uh, I think was the mirror image of his political beliefs, uh, the best of all possible wives. Uh, and, um, who, and, and, from, and from whose vitriol one can conclude a lot about John Adams and how he saw. John Adams did not do too much writing, uh, letter writing or otherwise, during his presidency, letter, letter writing or otherwise. When one reads the letters of Abigail Adams during his presidency, however, one gets the flavor for what was going on in his mind and, and in, his, in his house. George Washington. George Washington was... Um, George Washington was an American icon. Um, he, he persevered in the American Revolution, and some say that he, he earns his credit by having stuck with it. Uh, others would say, as the Democratic Republicans would say, that, well, who didn't stick with it other than Benedict Arnold? So that uh, distinguishing him on that basis is difficult. Um, he was the logical choice for president. After all, we had no government uh, other than the, uh, the Continental government, that was the, the, the Continental Congress and the, and the Army. The Army was the great American institution. Uh, and he was the head of it. And they had won no great battles. There were no other generals made great by the, the war. The war was basically a war of retreat and, and, and defeat. So Washington was simply there, he was a wealthy man who rarely uh, sp spoke on politics at all. If you ask the average American, what did George Washington think about democracy or anything else, the American would, uh, average American would say, I don't have a clue. So we have a founding father without a political belief. So, uh, but he was, a, he, was a good he, was, he was a good icon. He served the Federalists well in, in that capacity. I would not, uh, I would not give him uh, high marks, either as a general uh, or at, um, not so much as a president either, really. You have here, uh, uh, when George Washington dies, you say, George Washington's wife, Martha, immediately burns certain of his papers, and his nephew, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Bushrod Washington, will discard some, remove signatures from others, and license their publication to Jared Sparks, a Harvard historian and future Harvard president, who will control, withhold, and even reword them for the sake of Washington's reputation, and will be their only publisher for the next hundred years. What was your source of that? Well, I think I footnote some of it, uh, endnote some of it. I don't, I don't recall. I think that's generally well known that uh, Jared Sparks altered documents and that. What were they burning that, to? to we don't know. Them? We don't know what Martha Washington was burning when uh, that was uh, uh, something I believe that was noted in the first volume of Jared Sparks's uh, um, uh, uh, Jared Sparks's. Um, uh, publication of the documents of Washington, uh, but it, in, in any event, it's endnoted. But that's, I think that's generally noted. We don't know why or what uh, uh, was burned uh, precisely. Uh, it is interesting to note, though, that, uh, that, that uh, within two months before he died, uh, he was fearful that he was going to be subpoenaed 
to testify uh, or, or to pre prevent, pre prevent, pre provide evidence at Duane's trial, um, uh, the publisher of the Aurora's trial, uh, or Bacious, no, at Duane's trial, because Duane was, uh, Duane had published that, uh, that uh, there had been British influence in the Washington administration uh, and that the British uh, were exercising authority over Washington. Uh, and they produced, uh, Duane had produced at that trial a letter from John Adams saying that he saw British influence uh, in the Washington administration and Washington wrote some correspondence suggesting that he was concerned about being asked about uh, that episode in his administration. So I don't know whether this related to that, it came shortly after, I really don't know. How has your opinion of these people changed as, as a result of you writing this book? Well, what this book makes clear, I think, is that Benjamin Franklin uh, was a much different figure than we think of him as. Uh, uh, we think of Benjamin Franklin very often um, as an avuncular humorist, uh, an inventor, uh, perhaps a womanizer in France, a smooth diplomat, a lot of things like this. And these were images created by his enemies, the Federalists, John Adams and others, after uh, the war when they were trying to discredit Franklin during the 1790s. Uh, those who knew uh, Adams, uh, knew, knew Franklin uh, well, his friends, would not describe him that way. They would describe him as a great American, one of the most important Americans, uh, probably the most important. If you asked Thomas Jefferson who the father of the country was, he would not say uh, George Washington, he'd say uh, Benjamin Franklin. And this book makes clear that uh, what Franklin's role in the revolution was in getting France in and saving Washington and uh, in uh, f uh, providing an image of the democracy uh, that would endure. The people who elected Thomas Jefferson president, these editors and, and uh, who led the country to elect him president, were not essentially Fra uh, Jeffersonians. They were Franklinites. They were followers of Benjamin's Fra Benjamin Franklin. They were followers of his vision of democracy. Uh, really, democracy in America starts with Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, not with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and, 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 these, uh, these, and, and these editors were followers of, of Franklin. This is the cover of the book, 1,000 pages, 2,000 footnotes, American Aurora. Richard Rosenfeld, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.